0: Good evening, I'm Ashley Klimmer, Director of Programs and Community Engagement. And on behalf of the Rothko Chapel's Board of Directors and staff, I would like to welcome you tonight for the second lecture in our two-part series, Beyond the Rhetoric, Civil Rights and our Shared Responsibility. In conjunction with the chapel's 50th anniversary and commitment to furthering social justice nationally and internationally, we are examining different understandings of and approaches to furthering human rights and civil liberties in the United States through this lecture series, followed by a virtual symposium in late October. The questions we are exploring through this series include, how have civil rights historically been understood and applied in this country? Who benefits from current civil rights, and who has been left out? Which civil rights and liberties are particularly at risk today? How can we become more effective advocates and activists as we work to address injustice and create an equitable society? How can we rethink our approaches to the concept of rights, responsibilities, and civil liberties? And how do we sustain our passion for social justice and long-haul activism? Tonight's program will focus on LGBTQIA rights and the struggle for equality. We are pleased to have with us tonight to help us explore this topic and these questions Jody Winteroff and Adri Perez. They will each give a short address bringing both national and Texas perspectives to the topic. This will be followed by a conversation moderated by Reverend Troy Tresh. You are invited to email any questions that you have during the lecture to programs at Rothcochapel.org, and Reverend Tresh will do his best to weave those into his conversation. Also note that English closed captioning is available tonight. You can turn this on by clicking the CC button on the bottom of the video player and select English. Now Let me begin the program with short introductions of each of our speakers, and please note that the full bios for each of our presenters and moderator can be found on our website. Jody Winteroff, a veteran political strategist and respected advocate with over 25 years of experience in navigating the complex intersection between politics, campaigns, messaging, and public policy, currently serves as Senior Vice President for Policy and Political Affairs for the Human Rights Campaign. In this role, she leads the organization's federal, state and local legislative field and legal teams while overseeing management of HRC's political action committees and electoral engagement. She hails from Walnut, Iowa and is a graduate of Simpson College. She presently resides in Washington, D.C. with her wife and two children. Adri Perez is a lifelong El Pasoan, University of Texas, El Paso graduate and policy for advocacy strategist for the ACLU of Texas, where they lead LGBTQIA advocacy on the sexuality and gender equality team. Adri represents the ACLU of Texas in statewide coalitions, trains and educates families of trans kids, and advocates at the legislature on bills that affect trans Texans. Adri is an organizer whose intersectional experience motivates their advocacy as a native frontier sex, transgender, queer educator, and abortion storyteller. Reverend Elder Troy Tresh, has served for eight years as the Senior Pastor of Resurrection MCC in Houston, Texas. For 10 years prior to Resurrection, as the Executive Director of Reconciling Ministries Network, Troy flew nationally from home base in Chicago, Illinois to advocate for equality for LGBTQ persons, church by church, network by network, and conference by conference within the United Methodist Church. His ordained ministry began in 1991 in the trenches of the HIV AIDS pandemic in Houston, Texas, as the director of the Bearing Support Network. He shares his life with Walter, his husband of 23 years, Michael, their adopted son, one beagle tip, and one cat spot. Jody, Audrey, and Troy, welcome.
1: Thank you, Ashley. As a Houstonian and as a Texan and as a citizen of this country, I am pleased that we're gonna look at all these levels of shared responsibility of civil rights and what we can do together. It is a joy to be with you this evening in this chapel that I've been to many, many times. I'm also interested in how tonight we'll talk about what you can do, what we can do, what each of us can do to be a part of making the change in the world that we seek, so that we have a more just and compassionate society and act upon those values daily. We'll start tonight at the national level and we invite Jody to share.
2: Reverend Trish I appreciate uh, that you're welcoming us, even virtually uh, into Houston, Uh, and to the Rothko Chapel. Um, Thank you for your comments and thank you so much for your years um, of dedication uh, and advocacy and ongoing commitment uh, to the LGBTQ plus community um, in your day-to-day work and in your life's work. Um, You have made great changes and and we are grateful. Uh, I also want to thank the folks at the Rothko Chapel for organizing this, for celebrating your 50 years where you have helped create dialogue, action and impact and um, cheers to you and for bringing us together tonight and for having these discussions and dialogues and the ones that you will be having across the fall. Um, I wanna particularly thank Kelly Johnson, Ashley Clember, David Leslie, um, all from the Rothko Chapel who have really worked so diligently in, in partnership on this event Um, And I want to welcome and thank Audrey Perez for being here and for all the work that Audrey does on the ground in Texas to make change uh, and to lead efforts uh, in partnership. And uh, we're grateful as the human rights campaign that the ACLU and your work um, is uh, uh, ongoing and deep Um, and we're grateful that we have partnered in so many ways in the state of Texas and nationally and across the country. Um, as Ashley and Reverend Treach said, I'm Jody Winterhoff. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a proud Iowan, but tonight I'm proud to be on this call and to be able to dialogue with all of you. Um, like many of you, I have been in the struggle to see a more fair. An equitable and liberated world for all people and the last number of years uh, I have been involved more directly um, in LGBTQ equality um, but I have been involved for many many years uh, in trying to make change through policy through elections through education uh, and and so I'm, I'm happy to be here tonight so as I As I think about this, I I wanted to share a little bit of context with you and, um, you know, update, uh, as Reverend Sheech said, you know, some of the national context. But truthfully, you know, this is a tough time that we're coming together. And so I do think that this conversation um, is tremendously timely. And in Texas, you know, regrettably, um, it is a state currently where we are seeing the attacks that we're seeing in many other states but they're all kind of happening at once. And the drumbeat of multiple special sessions in addition to the regular session um, is is dramatic and intense um, for all of those involved. And as we know, even as recent as last week and even yesterday, um, the attacks on women's health and access to abortion, um, the attacks on voting rights Um, continue, and so there isn't sort of just one thing we can talk about tonight because all of these things impact the LGBTQ community. Um, We obviously are going to focus some on uh, particular pieces, uh, as requested, that are impacting the LGBTQ community nationally, in states and, and locally, and certainly in Texas. But as I do that, I want to just share with you something that I feel very strongly about making change in this country. Um, And that is this, that we must push back when we see these bills moving no matter where they are, no matter at what level of government, whether it's a municipality, whether it's a state, whether it's federally. And at the same time that that defense and that approach is needed, the other approach that is absolutely critical and necessary is a vision for what the world should look like so if you will part of the theory of change um, that we work to bring forward is it isn't enough to just push back on the bills we have to have a vision that we're working towards and as we talk tonight you know that vision really is about full legal equality as one of the steps on the journey but that also is not the full journey and so as we talk tonight that's basically the context that i want to bring forward and discuss with you so if we reflect for a moment on where we are, um, there's no question that we are building on the work of many generations. And if we took a snapshot of the last 20 years, we have h- achieved historic progress um, in this journey uh, in the LGBTQ plus community. And so, as we think about where are Americans on our issues, um, you know, there are more Americans than ever before who support LGBTQ plus equality and the um, you know you can take it from some of the HRC polls, but I will share with you, because there are a number of public polls that also have this information. The Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, as you more likely know them, um, this year found that 76% of Americans are in support of laws that protect LGBTQ plus people from being discriminated against in housing, jobs and public life. And so three quarters of the country has a different vision than what we're seeing move in the Texas legislature right now, right? Has a different vision than what we have seen articulated by very anti-LGBTQ legislators in multiple states across this last year as part of the backlash that I believe continues to happen as we make progress. So as we look from the Obergefell decision um, on, marriage equality to the Bostock decision last summer, uh, we have secured landmark victories um, for LGBTQ people in this nation and victories, truthfully, that have changed and supported millions of people's lives. And so we do come today in a place of progress and we are closer than ever uh, to passing the federal legislation, which is the Equality Act, which would ensure LGBTQ people are equally protected under the law. It has passed the House of Representatives. It awaits um, action in the United States Senate. It has had a hearing in the United States Senate. So this is as far as we have gotten in the history of the country. And so there are reasons to celebrate those types of gains and victories. And we also are seeing progress in some of the states. And after, you know, a number of groups, including the Human Rights Campaign, made historic investments in Virginia in 2019 to elect pro-equality leaders to office, we were able to then work and pass the Virginia Values Act, which echoes what the Equality Act would do at the federal level for the state of Virginia. And it makes Virginia the first state in the South to have non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people. And the first state in over a decade to add both sexual orientation and gender identity to existing non-discrimination laws. I will also say there were portions of the Virginia law that didn't fully cover race, that did not fully cover veterans. And so there were additional pieces to that that were not only pieces that can impact the LGBTQ plus community solely, but also have a broader reach. Um, So one of the messages in addition to, we have to play both defense and offense as we're trying to make progress and gain rights for different communities. Um, We also have to think about all the tools in the toolbox. We can't just have it be a legislative strategy or an election strategy. We have to have both. It can't just be those two without being able to navigate what um, can happen in the courts. And so you really do have to bring um, a full panoply of uh, efforts and tools to the battle. And representation also matters. And in Texas, uh, for the first time, you have an LGBTQ caucus uh, with I can recall my first Texas legislative session being only one person in the caucus, and now there are a number of people um, in the LGBTQ caucus, and those things can make a difference. They also make a difference when we see people like Congressman Mondaire Jones, uh, the first openly gay black man elected um, to Congress um, from New York, when we see um, state Legislator Stephanie Byers, who is openly transgender, elected in the state of Kansas. When we see Dr. Rachel Levine, um, who is uh, the highest level transgender person appointed to a Senate confirmed position in the history of the country, when we see a couple of Texas's own, Gina Ortiz Jones, um, take on an undersecretary position in the Air Force and be a part of the Pentagon staff, and we see Emmy Ruiz, who is the political director at the White House. Representation does matter and seeing our leaders in these different historic places. And of course, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, the first time an openly LGBTQ plus person has been part of a president's cabinet and approved by the Senate. So as I have seen many times throughout my career, there with progress often comes backlash. And I know that our community has faced challenges many, many times but currently we are in a state of really experiencing this backlash and it, it started in this phase of progress really around the Obergefell decision with the 2015 and the 2016 legislative sessions. And Texas certainly was um, one of the shining stars, if you will, in not such a great way in that session. And fortunately, the one thing I do like about the Texas legislative session is that you only meet every other year. Now, you add a bunch of special sessions often, but you only meet every other year, and I'm grateful for that, I will tell you. Um, But as we saw, there began to be backlash, and the first rounds of the backlash were really around relationship recognition. Some of you will remember Kim Davis in Kentucky refusing to give marriage licenses um, to same-sex couples. Um, One you might not know is that the structure in Alabama Uh, it's it's local judges and they do marriage licenses. It's actually not in state law that that's how you do them, but that's their tradition. And so they were refusing, but they couldn't just refuse same-sex marriages. So they stopped doing them all together. And so in some counties, straight couples, same-sex couples could not get marriage licenses and had to drive. And so that was their solution. So we saw many things happen. And then there was a shift, and I think many of us will recall, and certainly many in Houston will recall, sort of the effort around bathroom bills. And we had efforts in Texas in many states. We had HB2 in North Carolina, um, and it moved into also uh, trying to limit um, LGBTQ parents and individuals from being able to adopt or foster children. And in the latest installment of these, of what I hope um, we are turning the corner and have a doomed um, culture war, they're turning to focus on the rights and lives of trans and non binary youth. And, you know, we have seen this in many movements before in terms of where does the backlash go and where do folks try to um, uh, attack uh, a movement. And we see it in a record number of bad LGBTQ bills in a number of states. We have had hundreds of bills um, in over 40 states that attack LGBTQ people. But in the last two or three years, these bills have gotten more traction to either make it further through legislative session or as this last spring, we saw a record number of bills get passed. And so as we've seen this progress in this backlash we know that much more work is needed and that the resources and efforts that we need to continue to come together on and in work in community on and in partnership on are immense and they need our attention. We will have another intense special session in Texas coming up, which I'm sure Audrey will talk more about. And I will also see, say that um, I believe this upcoming legislative session um, in the states um, will also be an ongoing challenge that will continue to have backlash. And so as we look at this and see that so many of these bills, you know, they're, they're unpopular in terms of the general public. They certainly are unnecessary and they're outside the mainstream. And they have different things that they, um, you know, do. But we often find that they really take things to an extreme and Texas seems to be quite good at this. So in Texas, of all the bills that they, uh, anti-LGBTQ bills that were introduced, that sought to, one was that they sought to label a parent um, who was supporting their transgender child's healthcare and health needs as a child abuser. And so they really do try to push, you know, these things out um, into a place And I will also I want to read you a couple of these quotes that come from other states, because the level of vitriol and rhetoric that is happening, particularly to our kids, is just immense and intense. And a Florida legislator compared gender identity to thinking you're a car. I can stand out here in the garage all day convinced that I'm an automobile, but it doesn't make me an automobile. A Tennessee legislator compared gender identity to anorexia and gender affirmation and to full frontal lobotomies. Um, That's not, he also is one of the authors of many of the anti LGBTQ and anti transgender bills in the state. A Montana legislator compared transgender people to someone who wants to cut a leg off. There's a thing called bodily identity disorder. I may think that my leg is not my leg and I want it chopped off. And if I'm 10 years old and I have that disorder, there's not a doctor in Montana that's going to chop that leg off. So you can see what we're up against in terms of the rhetoric and how they are turning these things, um, you know, on our families and on our kids. And so as we think about... um, having a vision, um, uh, the vision that these folks have is basically legislating us out of existence. And I would offer um, that that is not only for transgender and non-binary youth. I do think that the vision and some of these bills are really to undermine all of our progress and to seek multiple ways to roll back any of the progress. And so these, you know, as I said, these bills are not supported by a majority of the country and they're dangerous. Um, They're trying to make cheap political points. Uh, Texas is particularly stinging at this. They're perpetuating stigma and you know, so far in in 2021, we have tracked at least 35 violent deaths of transgender and gender non-conforming people. And we say at least because too often these deaths go unreported or misreported. And primarily these individuals are black and brown women. Since HRC began tracking these numbers in 2013, we have not witnessed numbers as high as we have this year, regrettably. And there are several reasons. Um, for this increase in violence, including increased awareness um, of the violence and tracking this more so than had been done in the past. However, there are certainly more factors involved. Dehumanizing rhetoric, especially by some political leaders and religious institutions and leaders has real life consequences for the community, especially black transgender women. Black and brown transgender women in this country especially face dehumanizing stigma and discrimination from others a stigma that is only worsened by systemic racism and sexism. And it's also important to note that COVID-19 has had a disproportionate impact on black people, trans people, and those living at the intersection of those identities. Additionally, the anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans attacks happening in state legislatures across the country are impacting this increase in violence. And the stigma is not just happening on an individual basis. It's fueled by what happens in the public including lawmakers spreading lies and fear about transgender and non-binary people and their lives. So it's not surprising that we've come to a moment like we're in this year of these historic levels, considering the backlash, the animus, um, the rhetoric. And it's no coincidence that this year in Texas and across the country, we are also witnessing unprecedented attacks on our right to vote and our reproductive rights. The bad actors behind these bills are frequently the same people. And you likely know who many of these folks are in your state. And ultimately, the goal of these bills is the same, to try to harm and erase people who do not live like them or look like them or love like them. And this moment reminds us that none of us live single-issue lives. This moment also you know, brings our LGBTQ elders Black and brown trans women who rose up at Stonewall and Compton's cafeteria and places around our nation were in a multi-front battle. It wasn't a singular battle. Uh, They were in a multi-front battle to survive transphobia, homophobia, biphobia, sexism, racism, ultimately systems that viewed their lives as disposable. And we are still fighting those same forces today. So ultimately LGBTQ plus liberation requires the liberation of all people. And so as we talk about what we're doing, um, you know, I do want to um, share that we've been using every tool in our toolbox to defeat this legislation. In Texas, uh, thanks to our state director, Rebecca Marquez and her team, we've seen a great deal of success in pushing back on these anti-trans bills Um, And working, of course, with the ACLU of Texas, with TENT, with Equality Texas, Texas Freedom Network, and Lambda Legal. There is a good coalition working together to really push back. But we also know that um, the next special session, we're on the call for the special session. And so once again, we will have to continue to work together on these and so many issues to um, protect um, our trans- and non binary kids in particular. Um, the other piece I just wanted to highlight is the human rights campaign is also taking these battles to, to the courts. We have filed lawsuits so far pushing back on these state legislative bills in Florida and Tennessee, and we plan on filing lawsuits in uh, more lawsuits in the upcoming months. And we're also continuing to make a laser focus on the Equality Act because. If we didn't have a patchwork of protections across the country, and I think many of you on this call know this, that if we actually traveled from Maine to California in this country, depending upon where we stop to eat, where we stop to buy some clothes, where we stop to stay overnight, um, where we stop to see friends, we can have different protections depending upon where we are in this country. And we should be well past that time. We should not have to live our lives like that. Even in Texas, you have many cities that have non-discrimination protections written on the books on city policy. But if you have a job in the city, but you live outside in the county, many of the counties don't have those same protections. And so you could lose your housing. You could be denied credit and other things with minimal recourse and so as we think about how we want the world to be we don't want to live with a patchwork of protections we want to live in a world and a country where we can all have protections and rights and so the vision that we have of needing to push back in big and small ways um, and encouraging you to do this all as we answer some of the questions i'll have probably a couple calls to action for you um, but as I, I wrap up my remarks I, I want to just share um, you know a couple of a couple of thoughts you know with you um, our community and our allies you know honestly you sustain me um, and inspire me every day um, you know in Texas there is a uh, a girl named Libby, and she has gone before the Texas legislature three times to defend her right to exist and who speaks up with such bravery and grace. I think of the advocates this session in Texas who drove through the night to testify and stayed up all night to make sure their voices were heard. I even think back to the time when Hero was um, voted on in Houston and we knocked on doors uh, working to have protections in the state um, or in the city of Houston. And so you know these visions of action, these visions of community coming together to support each other, are how we are going to make and sustain change, push back on the backlash, and see a vision for our country um, and our, our people that is very different. And so as I have seen this um, change in my life, I wanna share a, a thought with you as I close my remarks. Um, I had the good fortune to take my kids up when the Obergefell court case was going through the Supreme court and be up there when the arguments uh, were being made, um, on the case. And it was, I took them out of school and I, I don't, I, I believe I wrote letters the next day, um, to their teachers about it, but you know, I took them out of school so they could be up there and be able to sort of witness history. And I said, if you're not at your grandparents when the decision comes down, because you don't know for sure when the decisions are coming out of the Supreme Court, I'll take you back so you can know the results. And at the time, my son was seven and my daughter was 10. And I took them back up that day and we're in the crowd. And pretty soon, and there was a massive crowd, lots of folks there. And pretty soon, the the they run out with the decision and the cheers go up. And my son, you know, pulling on me, he goes, What what is it, mama? What is it, mama? And I said, We won. And he said, Oh, that's great. And then he the next thing he says, I knew we were gonna win. And I love that optimism. I love that that's how he felt about that. And I hope every day that's how he feels about making progress for our family in this country. But I know that tonight and today, and during this next special session, There are going to be kids in Texas who are transgender, and they are particularly not going to feel that optimism day to day. It is my fundamental belief that we need to support them with everything we've got, and that as individuals and as we come together in community, that we can make change to help them and support them, and that Libby won't have to testify every two years for the next 10 years what a great great world we could make for these kids by protecting them and having a vision and passing laws and having them live uh, a life of equality, equity, and frankly, liberation. And so that's the vision I have um, and that I hope we have together. And I look forward to this continued dialogue this evening. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Jody. Uh, We do need that vision and for our children and for other people's children and for ourselves, uh, how to have that shared responsibility for a healthy way of being community, uh, community with diverse beliefs, a community that respects all humanity. Um, That is a grand vision that is worth working towards. Uh, We appreciate that national update And now we look forward to hearing some more about Texas from our Texas organizer from Audrey. And we turn to him now so that, to they now, so that we can uh, hear what's been happening locally, horribly, uh, exhaustingly uh, with persistence and uh, what we've been doing to meet those challenges and, and how we can move forward. Thank you, Audrey.
3: Thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction, and thank you, Jody, for uh, the brilliant introduction into our conversation about the state of LGBTQIA rights in this country and uh, the state of Texas. Thank you so much to the Roscoe Chapel for inviting me to be part of this event. Um, It's an honor to be tasked with talking about rights in my home state of Texas. Uh, Hi, everybody. My name is Heather Bettis. I am a trans, queer, non-binary first-generation immigrant from El Paso, Texas. And for the past year, I've worked as a policy and advocacy strategist for LGBTQIA plus equality for the ACLU of Texas. Uh, The ACLU of Texas is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that has both a C3 and a C4 arm. Our mission is to protect, defend, and expand civil rights and liberties for all Texans. And we do that most famously through litigation, but also on the ground through advocacy in various forms, some of that being my job through legislative advocacy, which I've been engaged in for the past nine months in the state of Texas. Uh, So I wanted to use this time in particular to take you all through a brief history of what the legislature has looked like in Texas over the past six years. And so that history starts, in my opinion, uh, with the 2015 legislative session. Uh, In 2015, there were only 12 anti-LGBTQIA plus bills that were filed and none of them were specifically targeting the transgender community. Several of them were about backlash to marriage recognition as Jody mentioned in her remarks. And the session ended in May without any of those bills passing. Around the same time, uh, the battle over hero, Houston's equal rights ordinance, which would have protected people from discrimination across 15 different categories, including race uh, was brewing in in the city of Houston. Uh, And I wanna take a moment to note that for the few months that HERO was in effect, 54% of the complaints that were filed with the city were on behalf of race discrimination. And this ordinance applied to businesses that serve the public, private employers, housing, city employees, and city contracting, I'm sure, I don't have to go into it to for too much detail for those of you who are in houston but this law became known only for the role that it would have played in allowing trans non-binary and gender-diverse individuals to use the bathroom of the gender they identify with and this became a sticking point for our opposition to anchor to it became synonymous with attacks against trans people and the validity of their existence attacks against this bill included included posing the theoretical and non-existent possibility that a person would transition solely to use the women's restroom and carry out acts of violence against non-transgender women. And I mentioned this because this was in 2014, 2015, six, seven years ago. And I wanna ask the rhetorical question, does this sound familiar? And so this brings us to the 2017 legislative session after marriage equality and after the fall of hero that proved transgender people can be used as a wedge issue to fracture support from the LGBTQIA community, that overwhelming national and local support for non-discrimination protections that Jody mentioned that exists not only nationally, but here in Texas as well. That year in 2017, there were 27 anti-LGBTQIA bills filed and about nine of those bills were targeting the transgender community. Eight of them specifically were targeting access to bathrooms and locker rooms, and the ninth one, much to everyone's surprise because we were ahead of the game, was a transgender sports fan in the year 2017. During the regular session, uh, LGBTQIA advocates defeated over two dozen of these bills, and then, just like deja vu, uh, the governor called a special session to once again try to pass the anti-trans bathroom bill. None of these bills passed. However, one bill allowing child welfare organizations to deny services to LGBTQ Texans based on their sincerely held religious beliefs did pass and become law. And so then that brings us to 2019, where we saw a stark decrease in the number of anti-LGBTQ bills that were filed. There were only 18, which is still a remarkably high number, but for Texas, there were only 18. And this time two of them were anti-trans bills. Uh, None of those bills passed and only one anti-LGBTQ bill passed, a state version of the First Amendment Defense Act. And as Jordy mentioned, uh, in Texas, we have the luxury of not having a legislative session during even numbered years. And in in 2020, the Texas legislature did not meet and we were free from any attacks that that were building. However, uh, the fight for access to gender affirming healthcare for trans youth and inclusion in sports and extracurricular activities of trans youth was already building nationally and in 2021 when the texas legislature convened um, we have already in the nine months that we've almost uh nine months that we've been in session the entire time we've contributed uh to at least 20 percent of the total national number of anti-lgbtq legislation in the country Nationally, there are 376 anti-LGBTQ plus bills that have been filed thus far in the year 2021. 184 of those are anti-trans bills, which means that roughly 49% of the total number of anti-LGBTQIA plus bills in this country are specifically targeting the transgender community. Of the 184 anti-trans pieces of legislation across the country, Ninety-three of them are transgender athlete bans, and fifty-one of them are healthcare bans. The other, uh, the other bills uh, fall into different categories, some of which criminalize parents, as Jody mentioned. So, uh, this year in the 2021 Texas Legislature, just by the numbers, uh, we have had over 68 anti-LGBTQIA+ bills filed in the state of Texas. Uh, that is 68 pieces of anti-LGBTQIA legislation filed in the year 2021 in the state of Texas. Uh, and of those, 42 of them uh, have been anti-trans bills. Texas single-handedly took the number of anti-trans bills in the country from four times as many to five times as many just today alone, there were three more anti-trans bills that were filed at the Texas legislature. And yesterday, the governor announced yet another special session with a tax on transgender youth on what is called the governor's call, uh, meaning that the, the governor's call is an agenda of topics that they're able to discuss during a special session. Uh, the governor's call for the third special session includes five priority items, one of which is barring transgender youth from participating in sports with their peers as their true selves. This year has seen an unprecedented number of attacks against LGBTQIA Texans and there's still yet more to come. The special session starts on September 20th and lasts until October 19th. More bills can be filed at any point um, during the special session and more items can be added to the governor's call. So while currently it is only attacks on transgender youths Participation in sports, uh, the governor could add a healthcare ban, the governor could add criminalizing parents to the call, and we could see those attacks as well. Uh, the types of attacks on transgender Texans and youth generally fall into three buckets. Uh, the first bucket is attacks to gender affirming care. The bills that we saw during the regular session and during the special session. Uh, are prohibitions on doctors being able to acquire liability insurance if they provide gender-affirming care. This then creates a a disincentive for doctors to provide this care at all because they could jeopardize their medical license for doing so. Another bill that we saw be filed during the special session is a prohibition on doctors providing gender-affirming counseling to transgender youth. And instead, this bill would require counselors to be invalidating of the child's gender identity or they would face penalty. The second bucket of attacks to transgender youth that we see at the Texas legislature are attacks to gender affirming parents. There were multiple attempts during the regular session to criminalize them as child abuse and designate um, the parents of, of, the gender affirming parents of trans children as child abusers for being affirming of their child. Uh, interestingly enough, actually in the state of Texas, we've raised the standard for proving child abuse, which then makes it harder for children to be removed from gender affirming homes. But similarly on the other side of the coin, it would make it harder for a child to be a- removed from a home that is not affirming of their gender identity. And that is something that we don't often talk about. The third bucket is the one that keeps coming back and is on the governor's call. And those are attacks to transgender youth in K through 12 sports. So once again, I want to emphasize that we're talking about kids. Uh, These are kids in kindergarten to senior year of high school. Um, And these bills attempt to restrict transgender youth from ever participating in sports as their authentic selves. They are inherently discriminatory because they attempt to restrict only transgender youth from ever participating in sports as their true authentic selves. They are not about sports at all. And most importantly, they are deeply, deeply dangerous and harmful. That this discussion is happening at all at the state level grants permission to other adults, school administrators, and kids to talk about transgender youth in equally dehumanizing and invalidating ways. Over half of transgender youth have seriously contemplated suicide. And those numbers rise during legislative sessions that hinge on debating their very existence. And this is a discussion that we have entertained for far too long now in the state of Texas. It is September. The first legislative session started in January. Bill started being filed in November. We have been at this for nearly a year, which is much longer than years prior in 2015 or in 2017. These bills are once again another attempt to simply restrict when, where, and how transgender people can exist. And to make matters worse, in the promoting of these bills, Republican legislators and supporters have conjured up the same arguments that were used in 2015 to defeat the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance and the same arguments that were used to promote the bathroom bill in 2017 These bills are not about saving women's sports. They are simply about erasing transgender people from public existence. These attacks are a relentless assault on our community, and they're able to take hold because there's a fundamental misunderstanding of transgender people in our society. Trans kids are not creating an emergency state, and certainly not one that is greater than our electric grid failing during a freeze in February and resulting in the death of 700 Texans. Trans kids playing sports do not pose a threat to anyone and no one, no one, no adults, no kid goes through the effort of transitioning and looking deep within themselves to find their true self and assert that in a world that constantly erases them just to dominate a middle school basketball game. These bills are in search of a problem that does not exist, but worst of all, They allow people to paint a picture of trans kids and by extension, all trans people as something that is dangerous and to be feared. However, this is not new. This is built on years and years of misinformation and media portrayals of transgender people as deceitful or villainous or the enemy throughout history our opponents know this and they use this to continue to promote the dehumanization of transgender kids and people so why is this happening well uh, i would be remiss if i if either of us didn't mention that there is a well-funded and coordinated effort to fracture support for the lgbtqia plus community that has taken hold of one target in particular these past two years and that is transgender kids this well-funded group works in partnership with local state groups to fight for these bills and i mention this because i think oftentimes we take for granted the movement towards progress and folks struggle to understand where these bills originate and why they persist but these same groups that write and push for these bills are the same groups that fund the campaigns of the representatives that file them across texas there is a building culture of vigilanteism, whether it's an abortion rights whether there is a $10,000 incentive to file a lawsuit against those who you believe may have helped someone access an abortion past six weeks, whether it's in voting rights, where partisan poll watchers have been emboldened to harass voters at the voting booth, or in this case for LGBTQIA rights, where just today, Dallas Independent School District sent out an email on behalf of Save TX Kids asking teachers to submit tips regarding critical race theory and predatory gender fluidity. The fabric of democracy as we learned it and as I believe in it, is being ripped open at its seams in the state and trans kids are just one of the populations that are caught in its crosshairs. And an important note that I wanna mention is that defeating these bills takes a coalition of folks, just as Jody had mentioned, and that is not just the human rights campaign or the ACLU of Texas fighting against these bills on the ground. Other organizations that are a part of this work include Equality Texas, the Trans Education Network of Texas, Lambda Legal, Texas Freedom Network, and many others who work alongside us against these bills, even when LGBTQIA rights are not their primary focus. There are doctors, associations, school teachers, coaches, superintendents, social workers, and even state employees that show up every single time to testify on or against these bills to counter the misinformation that we're facing. Most importantly, this work would be impossible to do without the families of transgender kids, without the kids themselves and the now teenagers, some of them have gone off to college, and we have watched them grow up in this building. I have watched Kai Shapley do this since she was four years old and now she's a fourth grader, I think a fifth grader, just over the course of this one legislative year. This work would be impossible without them showing up time and time again to share their stories and oftentimes they're getting tired because they know more about the legislative process than any eight-year-old or nine-year-old or ten-year-old should know. Uh, They should be allowed to be kids just as our Opposition to this bill states, let kids be kids. And this work would be impossible without them and their relentless dedication to this fight. Um, this work would be impossible without the trans adults who were once trans kids themselves. And so I say thank you to all of you for showing up time and time again to support each other, to support this work and oftentimes to support me as part of uh, this intricate network of support and care that we've formed um, in defiance of the state that continues to attack our identity. And just quickly to take a look beyond the legislature, there's still a battle for full legal and lived equality on behalf of LGBTQIA Texans across the state. Texas is one of 29 states where LGBTQ Texans are not fully protected from discrimination. And since 2001, when sexual preference was added to the state's hate crime statute, we haven't had a proactive LGBTQIA plus law pass in the state of Texas. That's 20 years. However, this past legislative session, uh, and I want to name this as just a bright gem of hope. It was the first time that Representative Jessica Gonzalez and Senator Jose Menendez filed a statewide non-discrimination ordinance that would protect Texans on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. Currently, we have a patchwork of protections just as we have in the country. We have that in the state of Texas. And generally when it comes to rights in the state, as an LGBTQIA Texan, it largely depends on where you live. Is it rural or urban? Are you near a major city? What race are you? What is your income? Can you afford to hire a lawyer if you are discriminated against? Do you have a disability? Do you have access to documentation as a citizen? One of the larger questions uh, for this symposium was, how have civil rights historically been understood and applied in this country? And for this question, I often return to my experience as a first-generation immigrant in this country that grew up in a mixed status family. When we're talking about civil rights, we are talking about the constitution because everything returns to the constitution. And who is the constitution written by? The constitution was written by old white men who do not look like me. And there weren't any women in that room or people of color in that room, no black, brown, or indigenous folks, no queer people, no trans people. And for centuries, all of those categories of people were barred from the governmental institutions that made decisions over their lives and over their bodies civil rights have been understood and applied unequally in this country and oftentimes it is through that inequality that we are able to highlight the differences in treatment and fairness and access and then use that suffering and harm that has already occurred to push for change and i wish more than anything that we could do that without the suffering and harm occurring in the first place Working at the legislature and working in advocacy and for culture change is one way that we're able to address inequality before these laws pass to hopefully stop them from passing at all. But the harm is already done. And when they do pass, it's only after someone has been harmed that we are able to sue and only ever for the harm that is seen and able to be litigated. But for every harm that is seen, I assure you that there are even more harms that go unseen. For every transgender kid with affirming parents, there are more that do not have affirming parents. There are more that suffer from disproportionate rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidality because they do not have that support. There are more that suffer long-term effects of mental illness. There are more without support networks or access to support networks. And that's what worries me the most, the invisible harms that are perpetuated simply by entertaining this conversation at a statewide level. Texas leads the country in the number of trans women murdered since 2015. And in 2021, there have been four already alone. And I'm going to say her name, their names, her names, uh, as I close. Because it is Miss Coco, Adeline Evans, Iris Santos, and Tiffany Thomas. And it is for them that I do this work, and it is because of Black and Brown trans women since the Stonewall riots that I am able to live my life openly and freely as a transgender Texan in this state. And it is this circle of violence that continues to perpetuate harms against Black and Brown trans women the most in the state of Texas. Thank
1: you, Audrey. Uh, as a parent of a non-binary, trans-diverse teenager uh, that leaves the house for school every morning, I pray every day they come home as they left, uh, that they have not been harmed during the day. And Every time one of those legislative sessions extends um, that language, that rhetoric um, that's on the news, uh, it just affects our home, affects uh, me, affects them. And so thank you for lifting um, just the harm and the needs that are up. uh, And that this fear mongering um, has a huge cost uh, to our people, a huge cost to our people. Um, We have a few questions for um, both of our speakers tonight and we wanna start on some of those that they can share as well. Um, I want to say to Jody, Houston gets to have the luxury of being one of the only cities of our size without any uh, non-discrimination support. Uh, and I remember one of the arguments being, well, you know, they can go do this federally. And I thought, well, which person has the resources and the time to do this federally so we have no local recourse? So the patchwork, both of you said about there being a patchwork um, within the state, within the country. Uh, What is there any thoughts for how we might be able to break through to have some consistency, or a way to create a more uh, safe way of of being able to travel from place to place and have the same um, safety? Ask you first, Jody, since you've had a chance to rest your voice
2: and and take a sip of water. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, I appreciate that very much, and and. Audrey, thank, for, thank you for your, your comments and your thoughts. You reminded me of some of the additional things that have happened in Texas, thinking back to other legislative sessions and the crescendo to this one. And, and I thank you for, for sharing your thoughts. You know, I, I do believe that one of the key pillars is passing federal legislation so that there is consistent coverage all across the country and that we codify pieces of the Bostock decision from last summer that gave people recourse, but it's still not codified and so still can be challenged in different ways. And so I do think that, that passing the Equality Act, signing it into law and making, shorthanding it, LGBTQ people part of the Civil Rights Act, sexual orientation and gender identity, and sex being added to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, codifying these protections is very important. And that does therefore kind of go to one level, if you will, of protections um, in the country, but it doesn't stop there. And just as we saw when, when we were you know, working on marriage equality that you did want states to have protections too, because it's important to have state recourse as well as federal recourse and so you know same with non-discrimination protections and states have their laws written in different ways sometimes they have businesses that have you know 10 or more versus federal law being 15 or more for the protections that are in place so if a state has those protections on the books why would we not want to be added at the state level as well and then have Case law and other things be built up in particular um, states, and so, so both things are true, and the same therefore is true also um, at the local level. And so, lots of these non-discrimination ordinances that have been passed protect folks in that city in the ways that city that city protects people. And so, you know, we did talk about Houston, and, and recently Charlotte passed as much protections as they're able to as an individual city, but there are very limited things that they can do because of state law and approach um, in North Carolina. And so state laws, local laws, federal laws, they're all important when it comes to non-discrimination, but I I turn it over to Audrey.
1: Audrey, do you have anything you wanna add to the patchwork problem? I mean, I think that that was a really great
3: answer. Um, When I think of a patchwork of protections across the state of Texas, I imagine myself driving from the city of El Paso to Houston and the number of times that I have to stop at a gas station for gas or at a gas station to use the restroom and how my safety varies depending on where, I, where and when I stop across the state of Texas. Um, I love to say this, um, and it's when they go low, we go local. Um, however, even here in the state of Texas, there has been a considerable. effort to undo the non-discrimination, ordinances and protections that we do have at a city and a county level. Um, I firmly believe that we're gonna need to win all of the protections, whether it be at a city level, county level, or state level, and at the federal level, all about around the same time to ensure um, that our lasting impact. Um, I don't know if you have ever heard that quote from. Governor Greg Abbott when he was our Attorney General, that he would wake up in the morning as our Attorney General. job was to sue the Obama administration for the protections that it passed. I mean, so my fear is that the state of Texas is frequently engaged in an antagonistic relationship with the federal government, regardless of the protections that we pass nationally at, um, at, a, mm-hmm. con- at a Congress level. Um, and so I, I think that that is going to have to be a, a crescendo as you've used, Jody, one of my favorite words to use as well, crescendo of progress towards protections at every level. Um, And that's going to have to happen through a very unified um, force uh, between local organizations, state organizations, and national organizations pushing for that together
1: in the same way that we
3: won marriage equality.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um, As people who live day in and day out uh, personally in this work, Um, that you're doing, Uh, how do you uh, sustain yourself? How do you sustain your passion, your spirit, your energy for social justice uh, and for long haul activism? So it's about persistence and how do you sustain yourself, this question. I appreciated the bright gem you offered, Audrey, uh, in the midst of all of the things happening, but the bright gem of an example that we can look at and hold on to. So how do you sustain yourselves? as people who are looking to possibly know what, we're gonna ask what they can do, but how do you stay sustained in the work? Audrey, do you wanna go first? I love this answer.
3: I could go on forever. So <laughs> I like this question. Okay. Um, okay. I, so I, last night actually, um, after we got the announcement of the third special session in the year 2021, Um, I was scrolling through Facebook, and I came across a little graphic that had an Oprah Oprah Winfrey quote on it. Um, And the Oprah Winfrey quote said that there is no greater gift that you can give or receive than to honor your calling. Um, And I started to cry. (laughs) Uh, Because at this moment, my calling feels particularly overwhelming, and I am exhausted. And doing work day in and day out that affects you personally, that brings up some of your deepest and most Artist struggles in life um, has been very exhausting and it has uh, certainly been a gross experience for me personally but I am tired mm. but I do believe that public service is my calling and I am committed to seeing that out to the fullest of its potential and I think I came out over 10 years ago now Um, I have seen the world change and improve for the better. I have seen people around me gain a greater understanding of transgender people and a greater compassion and empathy and willingness to fight for transgender people because of my willingness to share myself with them so openly. Mm -hmm. And that has uh, been terribly hard at times. But I don't think that we would be able to, to live in the world that we do now without That work as well, that open heart work of connecting with another individual um, so willingly and so openly. Um, Another thing that I I deeply, deeply believe um, is that hope is a discipline. Uh, It is something that you choose each and every day and um, you can choose to fall into hopelessness and despair and sometimes I do, but It is uh, is a discipline and the battle for justice is never won. We will always be up against giants when we are pushing towards change and the abolition of systems that no longer serve us. And I have found that there's no sense in believing differently. And when the waves of despair come, I listen to them. And I believe that it is your body telling you to rest, to take a step back, to fill up your cup in a different way so that you can return and continue to water others. And then I hope that you all also return with me and that you all also choose to believe that a better world is possible and necessary and on her way, which is I think the combination of a couple of different quotes. Uh, another thing that I wanted to mention, I think in this in, as an answer to this is that early on, I think in like my political activation, um, I, I had kind of an existential crisis while I was driving one of my mentors um, across the city of El Paso. At night, um, and she looked she looked me in the face, and uh, asked me if you could go back to knowing differently before you understood how all of these systems like interweave and interconnect with each other, um, to continue to perpetuate oppression. If you could choose to go back and not understand any of these systems, would you? And I said no. Um, and I think that is like the, the moment that I return to most often. Um, there is no one knowing this, there is no one seeing it, and once you see it, I think the best thing that you can do is to commit your life to just leaving the world a better place than when you found it. And as long as you've done that, you've fulfilled your life purpose and your life calling.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Jody. what about you?
2: Um, well, I'm in part sustained and inspired by comments uh, from partners and, and colleagues like Andre. I mean, that was very thoughtful. Um, you know, I, I think of a couple of things. Certainly, um, I, I have the good fortune of working with an amazing team. And I see how hard and smart and creative and roll up your sleeves uh, and persistent they work all the time. And the amazing volunteers we work with at the Human Rights Campaign and with our partner organizations and their volunteers who are showing up. It's amazing to be able to have that seat and that view of of all of those folks coming together. Um, You know, I also will say that I have been around long enough to have experienced defeats and victories in legislative battles and things. But um, I always was tremendously inspired by my first boss in politics and that was Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa and he was one of the authors of the Americans with Disabilities Act and watching him work on that, watching that pass and then seeing it put into law and and the ongoing work that was done but seeing that a vision like that could actually come to life. And policy could impact people's lives in a very practical, thoughtful, change-making way is something I am grateful that I get to carry through life. And then somehow I was forged in rural parts of Iowa, and maybe part of this is a gift of being LGBTQ and coming out and going through those processes, but I was forged in a way that I don't often give up. And I carry a persistence and I carry a belief um, that one person but a collective can really make change and needs to and needs to step forward to do that that we do have a calling a responsibility. Now I'm a little older than you Audrey so I will also tell you that as I've gotten older I get a little more tired and I have to recharge the battery a lot more than I did when I was likely I'm guessing what your age is. And so I really like to garden. I play a little bit of golf, but I don't have that much time to golf. And I keep bees and the gardening and the bees really help me stay centered. And they're you know, kind of, I do them mostly as solo activities, but they really keep me centered and relaxed in a way that not doing them does not. And so I think we have to have all of the above and and know what really um, is able to recharge us and keep us inspired.
1: Thank you, Jody. I, I'm, I'm a decades-long-in-the-trenches person myself, and I see inspiration every day. And so recognizing the wealth of experience we three have, staying in the field and staying motivated uh, to make the changes that need to be made, um, there are a lot of people listening who are allies or first-time listeners tonight and wondering what they can do, how they get started, uh, sometimes feeling paralyzed about what the first step is or that they might make a mistake. Uh, so what words might you have to an ally watching looking for some concrete practical action that they can take, and also some encouragement to take it? Do I call again? <laughs> I'll,
2: I'll, hit, I'll hit this one first. Um, you know, I think a couple of things. One, that even having a dialogue with a coworker, a neighbor, um, a friend, and really even starting to have that conversation where, you know, you can say, you know, these these bills that are going through the legislature, you know, I, I think they do more harm than good. And I think sometimes we might overcomplicate what that conversation has to be, or that you have to know the bill number, or you have to know all this information. You know what, actually, you don't talk in bill numbers, usually to your neighbors or your colleagues you talk in your values. And I think that's one of the key things for folks to remember. Why are you motivated to even engage in the issue? You know, and, and what what motivates you and what, um, what would you want to say to someone? And spending a little time thinking about that. And I also think there's a real value and likely many of you are already doing this, is listening to people who are LGBTQ or listening to folks either in person or watching the video of Libby or Kai, um, folks we mentioned, the, the transgender youth we mentioned um, who have testified. You know, you can listen to their stories to better understand the impact. and And that is one of the ways you can also educate yourself more and inform yourself more in terms of how these bills really do impact the community. And then, you know, start small, work bigger sometimes folks try to bite off more than they might want to be able to chew and so you know i would say to you you know we usually have folks kind of start out maybe making a call to a legislator and you know leaving a message or or sharing a message with that person and usually you're you can get a little bit of training in it and usually you can do that and and we sort of support you and i'm confident audrey's um, uh, the ACLU of Texas supports this too. So, you know, we have a thing you can, if you wish, I'll just do my little quick thing here. We have, you can text to 472-472, just TX for Texas. And it will it will ask for your zip code, I believe, and it will link you to um, the legislature to put a call in. And so we have ways we can contact the legislators. The same thing is true, text four seven two four seven two. Equality Act and you will also be able to call your United States Senator about the Equality Act and so you know those are some of the first steps you don't have to do a fundraiser raising twenty thousand dollars or you don't have to recruit a hundred people to come with you start with the individual conversations and start with listening and educating and go from there
1: Thank you Audrey
3: That was a great answer i want to say that we do not have a text line or a similar feature and so you should tax 472472 uh, with tx to get plugged into your state representative or your u.s congressperson um i think the first thing i think of when when i when i think of this question is um I wanna ask people to take a look around them and identify any LGBTQIA individuals that they might have in their life and build community with them and ask if they are supporting, ask if they are supported, if they need more support, um, ask how they need support and show up for the people in your life in direct ways if you do have that direct link to somebody who is an LGBTQIA individual um, time and time again, I return to the power of building community with each other and seeing each other's experiences through through different um, lenses. No matter how different we each may be, um, and then taking it from that micro level to becoming an advocate for a friend or a loved one. Let your elected official know that you how you feel about the issue. Share your story as an ally with your elected official starting from a place of your values um, ask your friend or your loved one if you can share their story um, and always 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 get their permission um, to share their story but acts of, of that like a of allyship like that can uh, really make a difference when it comes um, to advocating at the legislature but also advocating for your friends um, in their lives one of the most powerful things that someone ever did for me Um, was write out a name tag for me when I worked at Old Navy and my employer refused to give me a name tag with my chosen name on it. Uh, Even though there was a policy in place, even though there was a process in place, um, it came down to an individual manager who did not want to do that. And so my coworkers banded together to make me a name tag. and four years later, when the store got a new manager from a different state who was a transgender woman, she changed it in three minutes. Uh, and that, I, I just really love that story because it took another trans individual for me to finally be recognized as my whole self at work. And then a year later, I left. But I worked there for quite some time. And for the entire time, my identity was invalidated. But that one act from my coworkers workers um, sustained me and doing things like that, showing up for people in their lives um, makes all of the difference to these, to the harms of the anti-trans bills that exist in the state of Texas. Uh, establishing networks of support is what sustains LGBTQIA plus people in this state. Um, another thing that I think I, I didn't mention this, but there are two very powerful documentaries that are on Netflix and Hulu. On Netflix, there's a documentary called Disclosure. And it goes through the history of media representation of trans people and shows you how trans people have been negatively portrayed in the media for decades. Um, And so it's no wonder that now we face these attacks based on misinformation of transgender people that most people have a point of reference that is negative to transgender people from something in the media. And you can learn about that um, from watching documentary again I'm gonna mention it's called disclosure on Netflix Um, it's a very I think a good way to learn uh, and become intimate with the pain that a lot of transgender people face in um, in their process of becoming and knowing themselves without having to put that emotional labor on somebody to explain it to you another documentary that is on Hulu right now it's called changing the game and it profiles three transgender athletes, student athletes, um, through their lives both inside and outside of sports telling their stories of uh, struggles in in athletics, uh, but also their stories of joy and love and compassion in the people around them and how they're able to be normal teenagers in their lives. And so I think that showing that holistic picture of trans people is so important because we are so much more than our suffering. Uh, but becoming intimate with those stories so that you have a point of reference that is not based on this mytholo- like mythologicalized, fictionalized um, caricature of a trans person as someone that just exists to harm others is so, so, so important. So, I, I mean, I urge you on a very small, basic level, just watch those documentaries, share it with the people that you love, um, and then discuss them.
1: Thank thank you both. Um, uh, There are lots of things you can do and you will survive uh, and maybe decades later you'll be on one of these panels uh, telling people how they can do it as well. Uh, So we appreciate that. Uh, uh, One of the challenges we have uh, within the queer community and in our world is when we don't work together with persons beyond our own cause and when we don't recognize uh, isms within our own cause. And so I want to I point us to uh, first, Jody, a uh, specific question about HRC, uh, and, and this was, came uh, to us. With the recent firing of Alfonso David as the first black res- president of HRC, a lot of questions are arising around who leads within the LGBTQ plus movement, who leads? What is your response regarding racism within the LGBTQ plus community and how, can we address that and how can we make change there within?
2: Yes, so I appreciate um, this time that we're in um, and the recent um, actions are challenging certainly uh, for the human rights campaign as an organization um, and the movement. Um, I will also say um, that you know the movement isn't made up of one individual. And I think that's one of the core pieces of thinking about how we move forward. Um, uh, In terms of thinking about racism, sexism, um, even truthfully, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, even within our own community, um, we have much work to be done. And the intersectional work that needs to be done uh, in our movement is certainly needed to be done by the Human Rights Campaign and frankly, all across our movement. There are many issues from pay equity uh, to access to care, uh, to the violence that both Audrey and I have spoken of uh, for black and brown women who are transgender that are faced across this country. So as HRC, um, we have started a trans justice initiative um, that is led by a woman who comes out of the Atlanta community, uh, Tori Cooper, and she is a Black trans woman who is leading that effort for HRC. And so I think there are a number of leaders and individuals um, uh, that we will support and continue to do so. And the work in partnership is also critical, whether it be the Equality Act, the work in Texas, work on um, local ordinances, Uh, there really isn't a place where the work is not done in coalition and in partnership. And that needs to continue to be the case and it needs to be enhanced. And just as we're sharing that advocates need to um, listen to the community and listen to members of the community across a spectrum, um, so do we in doing the work every single day. And so all of those things, you know, are important. Um, it has been a difficult time. And, um, you know, I do think um, we'll work to turn the corner and to see a future of continued action and support and partnership for HRC in this movement.
1: I, I love the part of that question that says, who leads? And, uh, and I, I know as a, as a white cisgender, man, clergy, person, uh, I I have to not lead. I I have to put the voices out front of those who are, uh, whose stories need to be known and need to be shared and that's where the power is. And so who leads I think is really important anywhere in in the movement Um, and it is a struggle. Audrey, did you wanna say anything in this, in this particular portion?
3: I mean, I think there, Jody really uh, hit so many of the points that, that I would have made, and you can probably tell by my head nodding. Um, there's a lot of work to do across all movements in terms of having diverse and equitable representation of the people who are most impacted by these issues. And um, it is a constant daily struggle and question. Um, I think when you are in, in these positions of being a professional advocate, to ensure that you are using your voice and your power to center the voices that need to be amplified. Um, And oftentimes, I think when we, I firmly believe that we create a more equitable world um, by centering the most marginalized among us. And so taking a look at at who that is, um, it is the queer, trans, black, disabled, indigenous woman, trans woman. Um, And when we achieve liberation for those who are the most marginalized among us, we achieve liberation for everybody else who has more privilege than any single one of those levels. Um, I I mean, just as a quick quote to, to kind of ground us in, none of us are free until all of us are free.
1: Well thank you both um, I, in, in this time together we're going uh, to have a few closing words here and then we're going to hear a little bit more from Rothko and uh, Ashley and I, I just want to say these. I feel like we're really battling the bullies. All of these bills are around kicking uh, some of the most marginalized and hurting the ones that are being hurt already hurt them again and, um, and, and making people afraid in order to do that. Uh, i was a criminal once before lawrence versus the state of texas right before lawrence versus the state of texas i was a criminal in the state of texas in houston living with my partner and loving my partner and that was i remember the day that that changed that policy changed that i i found the first other lgbtq person i could find and jumped up and down and said we're not a criminal anymore we're not a criminal anymore and it was a moment of celebration and then we had to live that policy into practice uh, now it feels like they're trying to criminalize again. You know, we, we decriminalized and now the backlash is trying to criminalize again. And we want to be uh, aware of that. Uh, I am willing to be a criminal again though. I, I'm willing for justice to be a criminal again. I, I'm willing to, when someone needs water in a voting line in Texas, to bring it to them. Uh, I'm willing, if a woman needs medical care and needs me to take her to a clinic uh, outside the state to do that, so I'm willing to be a criminal again because um, uh, caring for one another and and making sure that this bullying type of legislation doesn't win, that we make it not work uh, by working together en masse to, to make it... Uh, just a moot point. So thank you both uh, from the national level, the state level, and then uh, me here locally. I appreciate it. Uh, welcome, uh, welcome to all of us. Uh, I, I hope to hear more from you in the, both in the future. Ashley, if she comes forward now, and will take us out.
0: So thank you, Reverend Tresh, Jody, and Audrey for being with us tonight and engaging in this very important conversation. Thanks to each of you for joining us virtually and taking the time out of your evening to learn more on this topic and how you can get involved. This program is being recorded and will be available for viewing on both our website and Vimeo page. We invite you to please share this recording with your friends and with your family. I'd also like to thank everyone who helped plan, participate in and financially support today's program and the development of this series. We have two remaining lectures that we invite you to join. We will explore the concept of rights from the American Indian worldview perspective on September 30th and immigrants rights on October the 13th. Then we'll continue the conversation with the virtual symposium, October 21st to the 22nd. Please visit Rothkochapel.org to learn more about these events and to register. Thank you and good evening.